Welcome to this episode of The Beat, the companion series to Policed in Ireland, where we look at news, events and research related to policing in Ireland. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Sharda Maria, a lecturer in criminology and policing in Birmingham City University. Sharda is particularly interested in technology and policing, and her current research focuses on the use of body-worn cameras. Listeners may know that legislation is in train for the introduction of body-worn cameras for the, for the Gardaí for the first time in Ireland. This is a big step with lots of considerations. Some rightly have privacy concerns, how much data will be gathered, how will it be used, how will it be stored. Others point to particular crimes where uh, it may be particularly helpful in securing prosecutions like domestic violence. And still more point out the cases in the US where it seems like the police have simply turned off the body-worn cameras before particularly contentious encounters. For me, the key is not to think about this as the panacea to police misconduct, because it won't be. This is never as simple as, if we have these, the police will do the right thing. But instead, we need to think through all the potential consequences and benefits of using such technology. How will it affect police and citizens' engagement? How will it affect how the police see their role? How will the data be used? These are all huge questions, and so I'm delighted to have Sharda here today to tell us about her work on the topic. So, um... Could you maybe tell us about how they were introduced in England and Wales and what the context of that was? Yeah. Hi, Vicky. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so interestingly, body-worn videos were first introduced in England and Wales back in 2006. Um, so they were introduced in um, an area called Devon and Cornwall, and it was a relatively small-scale study um, looking at the use of body-worn video for domestic abuse in- incidents in particular. The study itself was quite successful and we saw that body cams were useful, particularly for the preservation of high quality evidence at the scene, which for domestic abuse is obviously even more important as not all survivors uh, want to give their own kind of testimony. So very positive from the start. However, back in 2006, the technology was still rather limited um, and we concluded that we need a stronger evidence base before we, we drive forward with it. However, in 2011, we had the groundbreaking Rialto study from America, um, which you know suggested that body cams were going to be brilliant. They were going to um, reduce uh, complaints against officers. They fell by 88%, and officer use of force fell by 60%. And we had the situation where everyone was like, okay, great, body-worn videos are beneficial. They can improve policing, but importantly, they can do that both for the police and for the citizens. And after that, what we saw was globally um, almost a rush to introduce body cameras. Um, and, and England and Wales were one of the countries that sort of started adopt, adopting them very quickly across our forces. So that's interesting. So it's achieving both a reduction in the use of force, as you say. So for the citizen, that's, that's better if force isn't being used when it's not needed. But also a reduction in the complaints against the police. So that's great for the cops because they're not having to deal with complaints against them. Definitely. So that was one of the hypothesised benefits. Unfortunately, where we found ourselves is a decade on from that groundbreaking reality study, the results coming in from academic research, in particular on body cams, is still very mixed. So a lot of the things that we thought body cameras were going to be really useful for, so things like reduction in use, officer use of force, we're now finding that we have some studies suggesting that body cameras reduce force. We have some suggesting that they actually increase officer use of force. And so what we're seeing across the board is in various categories, we just have no clear or no consistent effects. Yeah, because I remember reading a study before that talked about, I think it was a Harvard study, 
that said in some parts of the US, and I know the context is very different, it actually increased use of fatal force because they felt if the public saw what they were seeing, they would agree that fatal lethal force should be used. I know, and it's quite shocking. And I think one of the the, the other things that we, we're really understanding at the moment, or not so much understanding, is whilst we're seeing these evidence uh, these evidence pieces showing either increase in officer use of force or decrease in officer use of force, what we're not getting is any understanding as to why this is happening. So like you said, is it that officers feel that they will have citizen um, approval or consent even if they could see what they're seeing? Or is it that officers felt more able to report use of force if they had their body cam switched on because they know that they're going to be protected? Yeah, so there's so many things that we just don't understand yet, unfortunately. That is really interesting because actually in Ireland, sorry, that point that maybe they're reporting the use of force more internally is really interesting because actually Ireland, it's only in the last year that the guards have started recording use of force. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, only since January 2020. Um, we have a new, so a policing authority for the first time ever, like the policing community, uh, policing crime commissioners, that was set up in 2016. And they've asked, so we're now getting records on you know use of firearms use of tasers batons and um, not handcuffs yet um but yeah there is an issue there about when is it being recorded so that's really interesting to think about that body worn cameras may impact that a, a, an increased use of force might actually just be a more accurate recording yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's about having those, uh, having the understanding and almost having a consistent approach to how body-worn video is implemented across different forces. So if different forces have different policies on when the camera should be switched on, what you should be recording, what you shouldn't be recording, um, how many officers should be recording, all of these things will, um, you know, if, if they're consistent, will give us a clearer idea of how body-worn videos are affecting these situations. But if they're not consistent, again, we'll keep on having these gaps in our understanding. And is, I know the College of Policing is generally the body that issues the kind of best practice guidelines on this stuff. So just on some of those details that you're mentioning, like is best practice that everyone should have them on and they should have them on all the time? So um, the discretion has pretty much been left to individual forces, except for those policing situations that are probably a little bit more controversial. So for things like stop and search, which is my area of research, um, it's recommended that officers have their body cameras switched on prior to the stop and search. Um, things like use of force, again, it's recommended that um, if, you, if you're going into an incident like that, particularly like firearms officers, response officers, it's recommended that the body cameras should be switched on in advance. And one of the uh, research studies that were conducted in, um, I think it was in America, uh, found that where officers had less discretion on when they could switch on their cameras, they were less likely to use force, um, which is quite interesting in itself. Yeah, because I think, I imagine most of the listeners will assume that if you have them, they'd be switched on all the time. So that's not generally the case. No, I think it was a bit of a compromise between um, officers not wanting to feel like they're under constant surveillance um, yeah. and, you know, sort of balancing officer morale against being able to provide the public the, the transparency and visibility that, that they want and almost need. Um, and I think in particular situations, I can see the justification for not having them switched on. So um, thinking about neighbourhood officers that are just trying to build rapport with communities, particularly communities that are already a bit disenfranchised from the police. Mm 
you could almost see it coming across as surveillance. Um, so I, th- I definitely think there's justifications for for it not being on all of the time. But for those really kind of controversial instances like stop and search, I think it's really important that there's a consistent approach to always having it on right at the start of the encounter. And then how do you deal with it? Like if an officer just doesn't turn it on for one of those encounters and subsequently the public complain and they say, you know, actually force was used and you should have had the camera on. How does that get dealt with? So presumably it would be sort of back to old school where the, the, the supervisor has a conversation with them. I think there'll, there'll definitely be a, a case where the officer isn't so much given the benefit of the doubt if, if a citizen complains, if there's no kind of independent, I say independent, if there's no body worn footage to provide that other alternative. Um, I definitely think officers will be required to justify themselves a lot more. Yeah. And so there is... Yeah, it is just so much more complicated than it might appear at first glance. And I think that point about there's almost an issue of like, you know, when you talk about the impact on use of force or complaints against the police, there's a question, isn't there, about, you know, people think it's this independent, objective bit of evidence, but there's a real psychology to how it plays out and how it affects interactions, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. And I think something else that we haven't quite understood yet is, um, or that we're not really capitalising on as much yet, is actually looking at the footage itself and learning, well, what can we learn from it? What does it tell us? What does it tell us about how officers interact with members of the public? What does it tell us about how citizens respond to police officers? And I think there's a lot of learning that can be done from from that. But again, that depends on the footage actually being accessible and, you know, general members of the public having access to this footage. Yeah, and this is, um, and you'd written a blog post um, the other week, which we'll link in the in the information piece about the episode. Um, but this is one of the things that I was really interested in because we do kind of automatically come at it as, you know, evidence either to be used for accountability or for prosecutions. But this point about learning is really, really interesting. And you were writing about um, how this is happening in relation to um, stop and search um, and community panels around that. Now, we don't have community panels like that. So could you maybe start by explaining how those work? Yeah, definitely. So um, in 2014, uh, at the time, Home Secretary introduced um, a scheme whereby um, they, they sort of acknowledged that stop and search was a real issue in terms of public confidence in the police and public perceptions of police legitimacy, particularly amongst youths and ethnic minority communities. So public consultations were more encouraged. And one particular form of this was to be scrutiny panels. So police forces around England and Wales were asked to regularly invite members of the public in to scrutinise how they use stop and search. So um, pre-body worn video, citizens would come in and would look at written records of officer use of stop and search, officer use of force, things like how they form their grounds for suspicion. Um, and a lot of the context was really missing at that point. The, the grounds for suspicion were a few lines on a piece of paper. It was quite abstract. Sometimes it was really difficult to actually understand what was going on at all. And it seemed a bit more like a tick box exercise. Whereas post body worn video, some of these scrutiny panels have been allowed to access body worn video footage. And it's it's been completely revolutionary. So I'm part of a panel um, myself at West Midlands Police and the, the panels are chaired by uh, an independent layperson and it's just, you know, lay members of that local community will uh, will attend the panel once a month, once every couple of months. 
um, and they'll just scrutinise the stop and search footage. Um, the, the chair picks the footage, so it's quite independent, it's quite transparent. Everybody around the room will watch the footage and then we just provide our feedback um, on what we've seen. So the idea is that the feedback, positive or negative, goes back to the individual officer and the force as a whole can take some learnings from that and can see, well, OK, things that, you know, the police might see as operationally, yes, we're telling them things like ground suspicion, we're following all the legal requirements. If those stop and searches don't involve things like, you know, treating the person with respect, treating them fairly, if they're quite sarcastic, things that lay, lay members of the community are more likely to pick up on, um, that's all really valuable feedback for, for the police. And for me, that's been one of the, the most amazing ways in which body-worn video has been used because it's it's really fulfilled that idea of transparency, which unless somebody's watching the footage, you don't have that transparency. Who who's being, you know, who is holding the police to account if nobody's watching this footage? The scrutiny panels are, are brilliant in that sense in that they give lay members of the community an opportunity to to get this transparency, to to hold the police to account for misuses of their powers and then to take that feedback and, and spread it amongst their communities. We have people that sit on youth groups, people that are from different uh, religious groups, and they can take that message and spread it amongst their communities. Okay, um, my mind is slightly blown by this whole concept, <laughs> even of the panels. Um, so we might start with that before digging in a bit more into the use, the way they use the, the body-worn footage. So like, how many people will be on these panels and how are they appointed? So it, it varies between different um, different force areas, unfortunately. They're voluntary posts and they're usually sort of um, advertised by the police themselves, by the police and crime commissioner. Um, and then each panel will have a chair and the chair will be a lay person and they'll try and, you know, just spread the word and recruit from the community. Um, in terms of how many people are on a panel, again, it, it very much varies. But the the idea is to, to have them as representative as possible in terms of different ethnicities, different ages, different genders. In practice, that's quite hard to realise, particularly amongst youth groups. There's, you know, there's not a massive... Um, not a massive attendance of, of youths at these panels, um, but at least there's still some form of um, community scrutiny. Yeah, because I mean, often the concern with these types of things is that maybe you get more the retired population or that kind of thing. Is that what you've seen or does it tend to be a bit more representative? So I can only speak for the West West Midlands and the panels that I've seen at the West Midlands, and they are actually quite representative, um, which has been great. And I know that certain panels have um, restrictions on who can attend in terms of uh, criminal records that can, you know, sometimes prohibit people from being part of a panel. Whereas the the panels that we have in the West Midlands, in particular, they don't have any such uh, any such barriers. So they are very open in that sense. Yeah, I would actually think that's a group that you definitely want <laughs> to have represented because um, there are people who have pretty regular contact with the police and so their views matter just as much as anyone else's. Yeah, most definitely. And I think that idea of making sure there aren't barriers to community scrutiny is really important. And I think, you know, sometimes the fact that these panels are held in, in police forces, them, like in police buildings themselves can be a little bit prohibitive, um, but it's a step in the right direction for sure. And so they're not like, it's not a general open to the public free for all. So they, they're kind of, mm, you invite people to panel, so they need like an invitation to, to be able to join, but they are meant to be open to, to the public as a whole. Yeah. 
Okay, right. Um, like, I just find this fascinating. And I think it's it's hard to imagine in Ireland that, yeah, so many members of the public could just watch videos of what the police were doing. Like, are, were there not concerns from the police about, um, I'm sure there were, but about, like, just opening themselves up that way? And, and would people get on kind of vigilante horses or... So um, I think one of the, the the main things about West Midlands Police Force in particular is they're quite open about their um, the, the, the disproportionality and wanting to do something about it. So I think that they're very good at taking opportunities for transparency. Um, in terms of the panels, I think there's very much a, a responsibility on the chair to to manage the panel and say, look, this is meant to be constructive criticism, um, you know, and they do try and rein it in a little bit in that sense. Um but I forgot where I was going with that. Sorry. Yeah, no. And, and and so if we think then about the panel, so uh, these panels are solely about stop and search. So um, that's the focus of the work that they're doing. So they're getting to see this footage and provide feedback on what they're seeing. I mean, that there must just be such great two-way learning in that for the public to understand what the police are doing and for the police to understand how the public see what they're doing. Yeah, hundred percent. And the the panels not only have like a community attendance, there's also um, usually an inspector or a senior officer from the force that will come and that will you know almost um, give their account of what's happened. And if there's anything that the panel like, if they have any questions or anything that they don't understand, the police officers are always quite happy to explain that. And like I said, if there's any negative sort of stop and searches or any criticism of, of officers they'll take that back to the officer and then they'll come back, the, the individual officer, and they'll come back to the next session and provide the panel with an explanation, which again, particularly for, for body-worn video, we had um, one instance where the, the chair of the panel was saying that from, from the footage, it looked as if um, the particular officer had cornered this person, like they were quite in their face, it seemed a little bit aggressive, and the person themselves didn't seem particularly aggressive in return, and they thought that perhaps that was just a little bit more hostile than it needed to be. Um, so they took that feedback back to the officer, and the officer um, responded with, actually what you didn't see on that footage is before that he was brandishing a weapon around, he was really quite drunk, he was quite aggressive himself. And I think that's again another really important point that if we're going to encourage community scrutiny, um, it can't it can't really be without the, the, getting both sides of the story in order to do it effectively. And that's one of the ways in which community panels are possibly a little bit more uh, beneficial than some footage that we see online that's you know perhaps a little bit edited you don't get to see both sides of the story but for the the scrutiny panels in particular having that officer perspective and you know knowing that something is happening with your feedback is really important and presumably part of the learning for that officer is like this would have been a hell of a lot easier if I just switched it on sooner (laughs) (laughs) most definitely yeah and like do I, I mean does this feedback link to disciplinary processes? Like, I just, I can imagine officers almost getting really nervous about their um, incident going before the panel and what's going to happen with that. Is that a concern? So from from the few interviews that I've done with officers, um, when value-worn cameras were first introduced, there was definitely a fear amongst officers that, okay, everything we do is going to be scrutinised. Um, you know, we're going to be under intense uh, visibility, intense pressure from the public. 
Um, but I think as time has gone on, officers have got more and more used to it. I think they feel particularly comfortable knowing that they're in control of when they switch the cameras on. And on the whole, um, you know, feedback has generally, generally been quite positive. And officers, um, particularly the ones that I've spoken to more recently, have said, well, even members of the public are now used to body-worn cameras. They don't mention them. You know, it doesn't come up during the course of a stop and search. We tell people that we're recording. They don't say anything in return. So there's definitely an idea that people are becoming a lot more used to used to being recorded. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Ireland was even quite slow to go to recording of interviews. So that didn't actually happen until the turn of the millennium, really, in Ireland in any substantive way. But even again with that, it was, um, you know, there was so much resistance from the police in advance. And afterwards they found, you know, less complaints were being made about their behaviour in interviews and they really got on board with it. And we don't really see much deviation from the policy now, like interviews are recorded. Um, But of course, that does raise concerns about does that push misconduct to spaces that aren't being recorded? Um, Do you think that's a concern where that discretion exists around the use of the body worn camera? I think it's possibly, um, I, th- I would say that one of the things that heavily mitigates that is I think police officers are used to being so used to being recorded by members of the public that they know even if they're not the ones recording, somebody else might be recording. So I think they almost see the benefit in recording footage themselves and having some form of control over the narrative by being able to say, well, actually that, you know, yes, you've released this footage or somebody's popped this online, but I have body worn video footage that shows the opposite. Yeah. And I'm thinking as well, and I'm really grateful for this conversation, because even for me, it's making me think of so many different things. But I can well imagine that there are encounters people have with the police that they that the member of the public really doesn't want recorded, that they're having quite a private conversation and they don't necessarily yeah, want to feel like that's that's recorded in that way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if if officers were constantly recording, I think it would be a a barrier almost to to being able to successfully build rapport with different communities. Um, but as it stands in England and Wales, members of the public don't have the the opportunity or don't have the option to not consent to being recorded. So if an officer decides this is something that needs to be recorded, tough, it's going to be recorded. But that then could have negative consequences for how that person engages with the police if they're yeah. comfortable being recorded. Yeah, definitely. And I think particularly amongst um, youth groups or groups that don't particularly have a great amount of trust in the police anyway, um, if you're, if, you know, an officer says, oh, I'm just having a normal conversation with you, but then you're recording, I think there definitely will be an element, well, why are you recording if I'm not under suspicion? Yeah. And how is that going to be used? Like, is this going to be presented in court or? Yeah, yeah. Um, People are going to be thinking through all of those different issues. Um. Are there, you know, for a country like Ireland that's um, about to possibly step into this space, um, are there kind of things that you think a country should kind of clarify or address before it it goes there? Um, I'm assuming you think it's worth going there, that there are benefits. I do. I think even though the the research is still very mixed at the moment, I think one of the great things about, um, you know, the fact that different countries are adopting it at different stages and, you know, there's still a lot of ongoing research in it is that we're still learning about it and new benefits are still emerging 
um, you know, as we're learning from it, it's it's like an ongoing experiment. Um, I think in terms of learnings, definitely having the policies and procedures in place prior to introducing body-worn cameras and making sure that that's consistent amongst forces and possibly having the foresight to think beyond just the individual recording. So um, opportunities for debrief and for learning from particular footage. I know in... um, particularly in uh so where i've been doing my field work in in west mids police the firearms department are are really good at watching back footage and they'll have a debrief and they're used to that format well they'll watch the the footage and say okay well this went really well this maybe didn't go so well what what can we do from it they talk about it from different uh different perspectives that ongoing learning process that you know really make let's capitalize on it we have it it's here let's capitalize on it so you know i think those kind of things are really important and i think also possibly um deciding on um approaches to releasing footage on social media which sounds like a small thing but in this day and age is such a massive thing that um a lot of so compared to america where they the police force will re, police forces will regularly release body cam footage really soon after controversial incidents we're a lot more cautious um in england and wales and sometimes the most controversial incidents the ones that you hear about on the media you don't the footage isn't released for one re- reason or another and i think part part of that is you know probably pre- preserving it for um for you know in case there's legal consequences and it goes to trial um but just having that in place and having officers realize that okay if something goes terribly wrong it's not this it's not the case that the footage will automatically appear online and from some of the interviews that I've done with officers they've sort of been a a little bit confused that prior to the body worn footage going out in response to a particular incident senior officers have issued apologies and said we're sorry for the way that our um that our officers have acted and officers have almost felt this conflict well I I thought the point of the footage was to show our perspective why isn't this going out yeah, that's and that's a challenge and it's that's an internal issue really, isn't it, about how um but yeah, it, it it's it's really about doing all of that thinking in advance about yeah. what are we gonna use this for? I'm really taken by that example around let's say the firearms incidents or, you know, maybe incidents where there's severe mental health issues at play and and having that like that it's not always about accountability and to be able to create internal learning spaces where it's just really genuinely, okay, when you did that, what were you thinking? Okay, is there another way that maybe you could have seen that? Or would a different action have prompted a different reaction? And which is an incredible learning experience. And those of us, right, involved in even higher level education, we know that we don't do it very often, but sometimes get recording people and getting them to see it back they see it in a completely different light oh I thought I came across this way but actually it came across a different way um and it, that's a tool that people use in in higher education learning so the depend the potential to have that in the most um controversial and difficult like really challenging policing situations to be able to properly reflect on them you know, in a safe internal space, like so that there is a big part of this. Yeah, I'm really kind of really taken about that, that that this isn't just about, you know, it is in part about the public seeing stuff uh, and having confidence, but the internal learning potential is really, really significant. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think it's something that a lot of forces need to encourage their officers to make the time for. So particularly um, the officers that I spoke to, it was 
the firearms team were used to having these debriefs, whereas teams like Response that are possibly a little bit more busy, they don't necessarily make the time for it. Whereas if you're in a position where you're just about to introduce body-worn videos, if you carve out these processes from the, from right from the outset, they're more likely to to stick around and to be adopted. Yeah, and it just overall, it's it's a real, you know, I think. I don't think anyone ever listeners would disagree. Like tar- transparency has been a really significant issue in Ireland. Um, mm. And it's something, you know, even the fact like we're only now getting data on use of force. We have no data. We have no data on stop and search. Like we literally just don't know when it happens, how often, um, let alone having footage of it. So, you know, there is there is a massive cultural shift in Ireland. And part of me worries about that, about if we're introducing body worn camera before we have that other kind of transparency that you're putting the cart before the horse, you know, if like if you have this body worn footage of stop and search, but we have no context about how many people are stopped and search and what's the ethnic or age or gender breakdown of that, that that could be complicated. So that I think needs to be factored in as well in the Irish context. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even in our scrutiny panels, that the first they show us the data of the people that have been stopped and searched, the demographics of them, then they show us the footage. Um, but th- there are definitely benefits of, of both and different things you can get from the footage. So particularly looking at statistics, like I said, it's incredibly valuable for showing us who's getting stopped and searched, but it doesn't tell you anything about the quality of that interaction. So at least with the body cam footage, you're getting an understanding of how officers uh, are speaking to citizens, how they're responding to them, particularly for things like procedural justice and just making sure that officers are you know, are respectful, they're giving citizens a voice, they're allowing them to you know, explain their version of events and you know, to just to be heard in the encounter. At least you're going to get some kind of insights into this through body cams. Yeah, no, I'm just, I really enjoy this conversation and it's really opened my mind to to thinking more broadly about the role that body worn cameras can potentially play, but thinking more broadly about what they can do. Um, and as I said at the outset, you know, I think, yeah, the takeaway for me is really that it's one of these law of unintended consequences things and that the conversation we need to have in Ireland is more than just body-worn cameras, yes and no, but instead, if we introduce them, how will they be used? What will the impact be on community relations? What will the impact be on policing? And will it will it help through that internal learning to have better policing? Um, and there's, these are never issues that play out in simple ways. Um, so the more we reflect and consider in advance of doing this, the absolute better. Um, so a huge thanks to you, Sharda, for for Sharda for joining us today. I'm really, really grateful. Um, I also want to say thanks to Tony Goals for producing the beat and to you, the listeners. Um, if you're already subscribed, you're awesome. Um, we really appreciate your support. Um, if you haven't, please consider doing so at patreon.com forward slash tortoise And if you can't afford to, then please just spread the word, retweet, recommend to your friends. Um, Policed in Ireland is returning next week with a new series and we're starting by talking about the experience of someone reporting sexual offences. So that will be a must listen. And until then, take care.